Hear the word of God from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 17 through 25, located on page 827 in the Pew Bible. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him, one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. And all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. The Lord be with you. Welcome to church, as Danny has already extended that welcome. And uh, as somebody relatively new to these parts, all I can say after the experience of yesterday is my, oh my. This place really is open to all. (laughs) Let's bow our heads together as we share together in a prayer. And now, O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we conclude our preaching series, Open in which we've been thinking about a faith that's big enough to be open to all. Over these past few weeks, we've been looking at what that kind of faith looks like. We've said that biblical faith is open to doubt and uncertainty. It welcomes the probing questions that come from the deepest parts of us that aren't satisfied with glib answers. We've said that biblical faith is also open to reason, and on the compelling insights of modern science that sees the world from a different point of view and helps to illuminate how truly wondrous our world is. We've also said that biblical faith is open to a way of interpreting the Bible that isn't closed off to other interpretations, but remains open to the possibility, or is it the certainty, that God still has so much more to teach us. 
There's something risky about this kind of faith that really is open to all. Who knows who will walk through the door? And yes, who knows who may even end up standing in the pulpit? Uh, Of course, it's risky. Uh, about who might come in. Oh dear, there we go. So who knows who might end up in the pulpit. <laughs> of course this kind of faith is, is risky. But shiver me timbers, there's also something joyful and liberating and life-giving that comes from this kind of faith that's truly open to all. Some would say it's treasure. Arr. That's my bit of Gasparilla for you. Thank you. But what about the concern that this kind of faith that's open in this kind of way to all of these sorts of things might become a wishy-washy faith where anything goes? Well, it's certainly possible that people might use the grace that undergirds an open faith to endorse their own agenda and consecrate their selfish living. But in my pastoral experience, that isn't our greatest danger. In my experience, those who are serious about living faithful lives are are often painfully aware of their failings and inadequacies and shortcomings, and sometimes carry huge amounts of guilt and remorse and feelings of unworthiness that can even become self-loathing. I mean, we know what we're capable of. We, we know what we've done. And it's not pretty. So with that recognition, we can't conclude this series without talking about a faith that is also open to mercy Because that is surely our greatest need. The mercy of God is our greatest need. And yet it's something we have a hard time accepting. So much so that it's not actually enough to just talk about it. We need to receive it in a very direct and tangible way. We need to participate in it. We need to do it. Which is exactly what we're going to be doing just a little later in the service as we gather around an open table where everyone is welcome and share together in a meal to eat some bread and drink some wine. It's a meal of mercy and grace. When I was growing up, our family sat down most evenings to supper around the kitchen table, and whenever we did, we always held hands and said grace together, which was a lovely thing to do, except, of course, when my sisters had been irritating me. When we'd been fighting, as siblings often do, grace at supper time was a real moment of truth, because then we'd have to hold hands and pray together. And sometimes that was really hard. And I thought that holding hands for grace at supper time was a dumb idea. But then there were the other times. Times when I'd been the irritating one. When I'd done something wrong, something naughty, something hurtful, and I knew it. 
and still someone held my hand. And while I didn't fully understand it, in those times, it's exactly what I needed, a quiet affirmation that I still belonged, that my place at the table wasn't determined by how good or bad I had been, that fundamentally it was still okay in spite of what I'd done. One particular incident I remember clearly. It was a Sunday afternoon and I wanted to play tennis in the garage, but one of the cars was in the way. My dad was having an afternoon nap and my mom was busy doing some admin. And so rather than disturb them, I thought that I'd take care of things myself. Uh, After all, I was already 10 years old and knew all about cars and gears and handbrakes. This would be easy. The plan was to put the car in neutral and disengage the handbrake. And then by wedging myself between the car and the garage workbench, I could get enough momentum going to push the car out of the garage just to the start of the short downslope into the driveway. As soon as the car got rolling, I would run around and jump into the driver's seat and pull up the handbrake. It was a foolproof plan. Of course, nothing is foolproof because fools are so ingenious. But I was just 10 and hadn't learned that yet. I must acknowledge that I made two small miscalculations that proved most unfortunate. The first was that the car started rolling out of the garage considerably quicker than I initially anticipated, making it impossible to get to the handbrake before it reached the decline. The second was that I never fully grasped the significance of the fact that our second car was parked a little way down the driveway, directly behind the car in the garage. Can you see where this is going? (laughs) Friends, let me assure you, it's one thing bashing your dad's car on a Sunday afternoon, but but bashing both your dad and mom's cars at the same time is something altogether different. My little 10-year-old eyes grew wide in horror as I watched the runaway car smash into the other one. I can still hear that sickening thud uh, and, the, and the twinkling or was it tinkling or screaming or screeching of broken glass. I thought that my life was going to end. <laughs> but that night, as we sat down at the supper table, We joined hands, my mom holding mine tightly. (laughs) And we shared grace together. I have no idea what we ate. But for me, it was a meal of mercy that became a true feast of forgiveness. Which reminds me of another supper table where grace was also shared in a meal of mercy that became a true feast of forgiveness. It was, of course, the last supper that Jesus shared with his followers on the night before his death, 
when he took some bread and some wine and gave it to them saying, this is my body, this is my blood given for you, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. If we read that text carefully, we'll notice that before saying these words, Jesus had told his disciples that one of them would betray him, one of his closest followers. How extraordinary that Jesus knew that his betrayer was sitting at the table with him, but still he took him by the hand, as it were, and spoke words of grace and gave to him the tokens of his body and his blood that were about to be betrayed. He shared these things, these gifts of mercy with his betrayer, but not just to his betrayer. Jesus also knew that Peter would deny him and all the rest of his disciples would desert him that very night, but they too were included in the embracing circle of mercy around that open table. That's what communion means. That's why it's a meal of mercy, a feast of forgiveness. In 1985, my father, who is also a Methodist minister, was appointed as the president of conference of the Methodist Church of Southern Africa. Those were some of the darkest days of the very height of apartheid oppression. But in his new position as leader of the Methodist people of Southern Africa, he sought permission to pay a pastoral visit to one of the Methodists in his charge who was in prison. The man's name was Nelson Mandela. Eventually, permission was granted for the visit. And so off dad went. He took with him some bread and grape juice in order to celebrate communion as a reminder of the hope and transforming presence of Christ, even in that dark place, in those darkest of times. Throughout the visit, a prison guard was present to monitor their conversation. And so when it came time to share communion, an interesting thing happened. Nelson Mandel was insistent that the prison guard should join them. I guess as a Methodist, he had his communion theology right on. And so there in the darkness and injustice of that prison cell, they knelt together and joined hands, a pastor, a prisoner, and a jailer. And together they shared a meal of mercy that surely even then was changing them and making all things new. Friends, that's a gospel story that shares something of the hope and promise of what we come to participate in today and the mercy and the transforming power of forgiveness that's available to us at this open table that Christ invites us to. 
And so today we come not to talk too much about this or even to to think too much about this. We come to actually participate in this, to do it, to take the bread and to eat it, to drink the wine, to be incorporated in this meal of mercy in which Christ gives himself for us. And so as we prepare ourselves further for this act of participation, rather than trying to add more words to what we are discussing today, I'd like simply to close with a story that might draw us more deeply into a sense of what this participation can mean. It's another gospel story that talks about a meal of mercy and the transforming power of it. Many of you, I'm sure, would have seen the movie Babette's Feast that tells the story of a woman by the name of Babette who came to live with two elderly spinsters in a remote fishing village on the coast of Denmark. She arrived in dire need of help, and so the sisters kindly took her in as their cook and housekeeper as they continued to care for a small congregation in their village. They instructed Babette how to prepare the bland, boiled fish and other insipid fare to which they were accustomed. They didn't realize that she, in fact, had been the head chef of the Café Anglais, a world-famous restaurant in Paris. After 14 years of faithfully and humbly serving as the sister's cook and housekeeper, Babette hears the news that she has won 10,000 francs in a lottery. She asks the sisters if she can pay for and prepare a special dinner for their small congregation, a congregation that had become fractured by conflict, division, and resentment, and consequently had dwindled to just a handful of people. The elderly sisters weren't sure what this kind of meal would mean, but somewhat reluctantly they agreed. As the movie unfolds, it becomes apparent that Babette plans to serve a six-course feast of the finest French cuisine like she used to do at the Café Anglais. She sends a merchant to Paris to gather the supplies, which are plentiful, sumptuous, and exotic. As the various never-before-seen ingredients arrive and preparations commence, the sisters begin to worry that the meal within that austere community will become a sin of sensual luxury, if not some form of devilry. In a hasty conference, the sisters in the small congregation agree out of courtesy to eat the meal, but to forego speaking of any pleasure in it and not really to enjoy it all that much. But as the meal unfolds, something wonderful starts to happen around that open table. 
as the small congregation eat and drink together, experiencing culinary delights that their bland Scandinavian palates had never, ever known existed. So the frictions between them start to ease. Hurts that had been harbored for many years are somehow healed and resentments released. Guarded suspicion gives way to generous sharing and love for each other is rekindled in their hearts. Babette's feast becomes for them a feast of mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, and yes, resurrection. At the end of the evening, as they leave together, they join hands around the well in, the, in their village and sing together, let us use this time to try to serve the Lord with heart and mind so that our true home we shall find. Hallelujah. That's when the sisters learn that the feast had cost Babette every last franc that she had won in the lottery. She had given it all for them. There's a similar meal to which we are all invited today. It's a meal of mercy, a sumptuous feast of forgiveness to which we are all invited, a meal that cost the host everything he had, even his life. It's a meal that he longs to share with us today. And so whatever you have brought with you to church this morning, be it a burden of guilt and shame or the baggage of past hurts and bitter resentments or maybe it's a millstone of inadequacy and a sense of unworthiness and maybe even self-loathing. Whatever aching hunger for healing and forgiveness gnaws within you, hear the good news. There is a place for you at the table of the Lord. There's a place for you at this meal of mercy. It's open. It's open to all. And it's open to you. So hear the invitation of Christ to come and eat and drink. And let the mercy and grace he offers at his table hold and restore you no matter where you have been and no matter what you have done. I urge you, friends, today, open yourselves to the mercy of God, for the mercy of God is surely, surely, surely open to you. Amen.